Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Caitlin Greenwich. Welcome to Our Shelves, Caitlin. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Fantastic. Caitlin's debut novel, We Love You, Charlie Freeman, was one of the New York Times critics' top 10 books of 2016. And her writing has appeared in Vogue, Glamour, The Wall Street Journal, Elle, The Believer, and many other places. She is a recipient of fellowships from the Whiting Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, the Lewis Center for the Arts at Princeton University, and the Guggenheim Foundation. She's currently the features director at Harper's Bazaar, as well as a contributing writer for the New York Times. Don't know how you find time to do anything, Caitlin. <laughs> <laughs> Her second novel, Liberty, which is published here in the UK by Serpent's Tale, received rave reviews and it has just won the New Atlantic Independent Booksellers Association Award for Fiction and the New England Independent Booksellers Association Award for Fiction. So congratulations for those. Thank you. And she has also written an absolutely brilliant introduction to the Virago Modern Classics edition of Anne Petrie's third novel, The Narrows, which was originally published back in 1953. So let's start with that, if we may, Caitlin. Um, mm. And I'm wondering if you could begin by maybe telling our listeners a little bit about Anne Petrie, because I think she's a writer who's pretty well known in the States, but actually here in the UK, we're really not so familiar with her work. So it'd be great to learn a little bit about her, um, about The Narrows in particular, particular and as you sort of do in your introduction ask you to maybe expand a little bit on what her writing has meant to you and your work over the years. Sure so Anne Petrie is probably most famous for her first novel it was called The Street and when it was published it was a massive success it was a it was a bestseller and sort of out of nowhere it was a massive success because when it was published not many black women were were being published writing novels or writing fiction and it's specifically about working class black people it's about a street in Harlem and sort of the trials and tribulations of the people on it and particularly the women on the street how they mm -hmm. are experiencing the world through both their gender their race and their class and so she's a really interesting figure 
figure in that, you know, she did not like the spotlight. She was really leery of sort of the, the trappings of literary fame. And she spoke often to her family about how much she did not like interviews. She did not like sort of like awards or anything like that. There's a wow. really great anecdote and her, her daughter wrote a, a memoir about her. And there's a really great anecdote in it where she's talking about, they went to like a reading at a, at a university and the professor giving the reading recognized Anne Petrie sitting in the front row and sort of so you know, like everybody, there's a great writer sitting here. And afterwards, Anne Petrie was sort of like, why would she ever do that? This was like so, oh, she, she looked at it sort of like a privacy violation. So, you know, but she wasn't like a recluse or anything like that. She just did not enjoy that part of literary life. She was, she was not doing it for necessary literary stardom. So The Narrows is a, a really extraordinary novel. It's almost like a, I, I would call it like a noir almost. It's, it's mm-hmm. really sort of playing with a couple different genres. And it's mostly focused on this one family that lives in this neighborhood that is called The Narrows. It's a Black neighborhood of a town in Connecticut, which is a famously white state in, in, in the U.S. Connecticut isn't really known for having a very big Black population or sort of Black culture. But there's this one sort of community that they've, they've carved out the space here. This one woman, she owns a boarding house there. She's very aware of the class differentials in the town. She's very aware of the fact that once Black people have begun to buy on this part of town, the town that that neighborhood has sort of fallen into disrepute. And so she's very aware of her status as a Black woman owning a boarding house in that style. So being sort of of a, of a slightly higher class than the people who she rents to. And she's also like very uncertain and, and worried about sort of the changes that are happening in the neighborhood because of the uh, turnover that's happening there. Her son, through sort of like a series of events, he's working at a, at a local bar in the neighborhood that, again, she looks down on because <laughs> it's like, you know, it's a not a great place. She looks at sort of like riffraff situation. Like she doesn't like the people who are who are attending the bar. But her son uh, is working there. The owner of the bar, he the son sort of has a really close friendship with. He's like another black Black male sort of figure in his life, uh, counterpart to his mother, who sort of looks down on all these people. Uh, This guy is really into sort of the underworld scene that's around there. So the son is working at this bar. One night he meets a woman at this bar. Uh, They have a connection. Um, They begin to fall in love. He realizes that at first he's he's not really sure or, or, you know, he he assumes that the woman is just a light-skinned Black woman, but he eventually figures out that the woman is a white woman and in fact belongs to one of the most powerful families in town. They have a, uh, what is, of course, going to be a doomed romance because this, of course, is in sort of deep in, in segregation during the town. And the rest of the novel sort of plays out how different people in the town are reacting to this relationship and to the uh, aftermath sort of like violent um, uh, fallout of this relationship. So The Narrows, like I said, you know, it's... It, it reads sort of, to me at least, it reads sort of like a, a noir novel, but with really close character observations from Petri. That's what Petri is sort of really wonderful about, is figuring out the interiority of her characters and figuring out how they perceive the world. And it's often through the physical descriptions of the, of the world around them. So her characters, they're not necessarily, um, you know, sort of like flowery, poetic interior life. Like, you know, if you think of something like a Toni Morrison novel, you know, like those characters always sort of like speak in this really like beautiful poetry inside their mind. And they're, you know, like they're making all these connections or whatever. And Petri's characters, they're very much of this world and they are very much sort of seeing sort of the common things around them and, and, and making the connections to understand themselves and the world around them. And what I love about her work is is that real sort of like hewing to realism in a in a really sort of interesting way i think when you talk about black american women fiction uh, writing 
you know, there's sort of this tradition of someone like a Morrison or a Tony K. Bambara who sort of go in this more metaphysical, kind of spiritual, poetic, metaphorical realm. And the writers who sort of hew more to like strict realism, mm. we sort of hear less from them. And Anne Petrie sort of is definitely, you know, at the top of her game in this novel, I'm um, doing this. And for that reason, I love this novel just as sort of like a, another way to think about Black women writers' craft around writing fiction. I think, I mean, that's a brilliant introduction. If anyone hasn't read it, definitely go out and you know buy this new edition because it's a brilliant, brilliant novel. I think what I was taken by, particularly there's a bit in your introduction, I think, where you say that um, Petrie uh, definitely explores what it means to have an interior life under the unrelenting gaze of whiteness. And I was really struck by this because so, um, you know, the main characters in this book are, they're all black, you know, they're obviously our white characters, uh, you know, play into it. But but yet whiteness, it really, really instructs the way they sort of have learned to think about themselves in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I had to be, I sort of had to be, it was really great, I think, that you put that introduction because it sort of reminded me and made me think about it very differently while I was reading it. But it is a huge part of the novel, isn't it? It is. And it, and I think that's, again, a testament to Petri's sort of understanding of the realism of it, because these yeah. characters are... I think the setting is is really important and and um uh you know if you're not a reader from America and especially if you're not a reader from the northeast right. the setting the set the subtleties of the setting will be sort of lost um so Connecticut like I said it, it is a uh sort of a state that's not known for a large black population in fact most people probably assume there isn't really a black population mm. there at all um it's also part of New England so it's part of sort of the oldest settled part of the US and it's part of that very particular U.S. myth around sort of the American Revolution and right. uh, patriots and sort of like the founding fathers. All yeah. that stuff is sort of in in that air when you sort of say... I sort of think of like wasps and that sort of... <laughs> exactly. You know, like, like, yeah. And I, you know, as a non-American, that's what I think of when I think of exactly, Connecticut. Right? Exactly, Connecticut. So so to have a, this Black community living there and to explore these characters, that's sort of the, the both the spoken and unspoken tension that's a around these characters constantly. So even though they're living in the segregated world where their actual interactions with white people are, are very limited yeah. and in, in very um, uh, formalized ways, like it's in, it's employment or it's people sort of like crossing over the color line like this woman does to sort of dabble in or whatever. Um, it's, it's in these very sort of like regimented ways. They are still... Um, within this sort of larger imagination of whiteness because of where they live and in, and in a very different way than it would be if the novel was set, say, in a southern city, um, mm. in, a, in a majority black state like, you know, Louisiana or um, Alabama or someplace like that, where um, this same story, the same, the exact same plot points could happen, but the, 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 I, I, I believe the interiority would probably be very different. And, um, you know, I think that's, like I said, I think that's a testament to the craft that Petri put into this and, and her real um, sort of belief and uh, uh, interest in um, realism in fiction. Uh, and so, you know, there's a really wonderful um, accounting of her work by the novelist Tyree Jones that was in um, the New York Times a few years ago. Um, and she talks a little bit about how much um how deeply uh, uh, Petri believed that fiction was a place to sort of explore these larger, what we sort of call like social concerns, like race and gender and class. Mm. She really believed that fiction um, was best served for that. And she sort of was 
a little skeptical of the idea sometimes that some people put forth that fiction is some fiction can somehow be removed from those discussions or somehow okay. fiction is a purely aesthetic as if aesthetics yeah. are not political um, thing. She was really, um, she really adamantly sort of believed the opposite and, and wrote um, uh, a lot of craft essays around that question. Um, and it's also why her, I think her work, some of her later work sort of fell out of favor later on, you know, as, as people, as different types of fiction become more fashionable or less fashionable, you know, work that is explicitly political like hers mm. um, sort of comes back around uh, every so often in sort of that cycle of aesthetics yeah. that happens over and over again, that conversation, yeah, yeah. that never ending conversation that, um, you know, may bears so much fruit over and over again that we have about what, what a novel should be or what fiction should be. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think in the introduction, you say that you first read The Street, her first novel, when you were a college student, or was it, or was it a school student? I can't remember. A college Sorry. student, yeah. Mm-hmm. College student, yeah. And so is that the way that most people you think in America probably come across her work? Are, is The Street a set text for many students? Yeah, I think most people probably read The Street in either high school or college. It's often okay. a choice for, I read it in a women's studies class. I read it in a, in a class that was specifically about um reading about gender in fiction um and we read it alongside like Edith Wharton and and other sort of uh writers who are exploring um women different women's experiences um and so I think most people read it in that way because it is because she was so sort of like a explicitly political in her work I think it often Mm -hmm. serves for that but I I do think also you know Petri was as much a interested in in like I said earlier, like the craft of fiction writing. How do you build the interior of a character? What do you want them to actually sort of be focusing on? Um, what sort of language are you going to use? I mean, I, I I think Petri is really interesting as well for um, the economy of her language and and really sort of the the directness of it as well. Um, a way of writing that can <laughs> is very is actually very difficult. You know, I think she sort of she does it so well. You know, when you read her books, it's very easy to sort of um lose yourself in them and and not mm. paying attention to the craft of the sentences but they are really um beautiful uh sort of sparse and, and direct um um sentences uh there as well and would you count her as a sort of direct influence on your work or is that am I trying to push that too much on you just because you you've spoken <laughs> so eloquently about her here. I think she's an influence in that she she provides for me a tradition to write into in terms of Um, thinking about how I want my work to talk about, talk to the larger world. Mm. Um, And, you know, one thing about The Street is it is a novel that's very explicitly about a very specific time period, a very specific street, very specific time period, but it still resonates with people today. For for me, you know, um, when I was started writing fiction, we were at the point in the sort of that never ending debate about like aesthetics versus politics, where people were sort of arguing that, novel writing should never intersect with or, or shouldn't explicitly intersect with politics. And it should mm-hmm. all just be about the beautiful sentence that when you try to put po- politics into a work, it sort of cheapens the work or somehow warps the work or, 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 or somehow means that the work isn't going to um, last for the, for endless time. Yeah. Yeah. Like sort of breathe time. by itself, right? It's, breathe yeah. by itself. And, and so someone like Petri 
um, is a direct rebuke to that argument. You know, her work still stands on its own. Her work, you could read the narrows um, simply for how she's going to build the suspense. Like, I, I think I left that mm. out when I was talking earlier. We, the, the tension in that novel is from the first page or sort of like, <gasps> like it's yeah. like this. So you could just read the narrows for that alone and, and sort of um, not, not, be interested in, in sort of the larger questions that she's bringing out and, and it works on that level. And so in that way, Petri for me is, is a real inspiration or, or a real influence in my work to think of how do I talk about the things that I want to talk about in fiction um, while also creating a work that stands on its own on a craft level as, mm. as a work of art is something that someone can lose themselves in and sort of like walk within, I guess. Can we briefly talk a little bit about Liberty, your most recent novel, um, sure. which was beautiful. And this is, um, it begins in like a post-Civil War New York. And we've got a relationship between a freeborn black doctor and her daughter. And the doctor is one of the first black, well, she is the first black woman doctor, isn't she, practicing mm-hmm. in New York State. Um, and it's a rare work of historical fiction about freedom, um, with black characters at its center, thinking about freedom and what freedom means, means to them, but not seen through the lens of like white violence or the white gaze. And as I was reading it, I just kept thinking, this seems to me such a radical thing to do. But yet in 2001, this shouldn't be kind of a radical thing to do. But yet, but yet it is. I mean, I presume you were very much aware of that while you were writing it. Um, and I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I was super aware of all of that when I was writing it. And it was it was a challenge to myself artistically, um, just to say, could you write a, a novel that feels believable to a reader about these characters in this time period, um, where uh, there would not be white characters or white violence? Could you still believe, a, would these characters still stand on their own in, in a complexity, and not read sort of like a fantasy or, or a fairy tale mm. or something like that? Um, so that was really important to me. And, you know, as I was writing, I was sort of thinking more and more about really about like what sort of narratives are there in the world and, and how much the narratives that we have influence what we think is possible in in the wider world. Okay. I was just really thinking about, you know, how much of our, especially in the U S how much of our political life is so limited in part because people don't have bigger imaginations about what is possible now and also what happened in the past. Like when, right. you know, I've, I've worked in black history sites for a very long time as, as, um, as either staff at museums or, or doing sort of historical interpretation. So um, I, I thought about it a lot and, you know, there's so much stuff. It, it's actually very heartbreaking when you read the history and realize you know, things were terrible in the 1870s or 1880s in many ways for Black people in the U.S., but also in other ways, we had things that we lost. Like we we had beautiful um, inst- institutions and businesses and schools and, and communities that we built up that we actually lost and that um, okay. you know, some things were um, not better in the past, but, you know, had more possibility in the past than we now have in the future. And for me, um, to know that actually helps me be more hopeful about we, what we can build in the future in the in sort of the world that we know now, knowing that in the past, people actually already sort of did that work. Um, mm. And uh, we can hopefully find a way to sort of reclaim it. That's really fascinating. And I think the other thing about the book, which I found, again, so sort of refreshing and strange was this idea that Liberty, the main character, she is sort of 
she doesn't want to be great in the way that her mother is a sort of groundbreaker. She wants her mother wants her to be this kind of great character, this great figure, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. And Liberty is sort of pushing against that. It's also a book about what it means to to not want to be the kind of the, the revolutionary force, to just want to live an ordinary <laughs> life and to, you know, to love and live an ordinary life that doesn't mean that you're always the one who's pushing at those boundaries. And again, those I don't know, I think <laughs> I mean, this sounds like almost a very foolish thing for me to admit, but reading that book, reading your novel, it made me realize in a way how awful, and I don't know how how much as a black writer, often one is probably put into boxes and expected to write certain things. You're expected to write about the sort of the special person, you know, the special figure in the past, or you're supposed to write about, you know, the horrific um, instance of the past. You're not allowed to expand your imagination outside of that. And that's got to be incredibly frustrating I can only imagine yeah I think I think it goes back again to that idea of like we can expand our imaginations and and that's one of the wonderful things about fiction is that it it teaches it for me at least it it means that other worlds are possible and that can be you know something as big as like a you know a whole you know in a speculative fiction somebody like making up a whole other world where you know whatever things that are happening in this world are solved, whatever thing. But it, it can also just mean another world within a person's mind, like other mm. ways of thinking about the world and thinking about yourself and thinking about how you connect to your family and the world around you are also possible. That's one of the things that I personally love about when I when I find a book that I love, it's often because I'm coming up against a perspective that is completely different to me and really yeah. intriguing. And I want to be in that other consciousness like I love when you read a novel and you come across a character and you're like this person is completely like I don't understand them like they're just I don't understand how they look at the world or or anything like that and I just want to read more and I want to be in that space more because it's so um strange or interesting or just you know new to me in some sort of way but that's the power of great fiction isn't it it opens up your consciousness and it's not just a case of and I think yes it's realizing that it's not just saying that you can be inside other people's minds but actually within that there are kind of worlds and worlds and worlds which can open up to you which is Mm -hmm. you know the joy or why we all read Mm -hmm. um that seems like a perfect place for me to stop and ask you about two books that are currently on your bedside table at the moment please Caitlin yeah um so right now I'm reading this memoir called Recollections of My Life as a Woman by Diane de Prima um who is a one of the few women involved in the beats beat poetry scene mm. um and she wrote this memoir that came out about 20 years ago now um that's specifically about her life in New York and um her very early life because she uh dropped out of college when she was like 17 or 18 uh, moved to New York in the 1950s, threw herself into this sort of underground art scene. Um, and then also, I mean, what what makes the book really, I'm, even that would just be remarkable. In yeah. But what makes the book very, also very remarkable is that uh, when she was, I think, 20, she decided, and this is in like 1959, as a 20-year-old living in this art scene, one of the few women in these art scenes who's actually producing work and, and being considered an artist, she decides she wants to become a mother and a single mother at that. She decides she wants to have a baby. Wow. Um, as she puts it, she says, like, my whole life as being an artist is was to experience everything this world has to offer. And why wouldn't I want to experience being a parent? That's part of this what this world has to offer. It's really it's sort of completely, um, like I said, it's a complete different consciousness idea. Yeah. That I think we get it from a lot of um, biographies or, or stuff about um, women writers, especially. Uh, so 
she does it at 20. She she gets pregnant by a friend and she doesn't tell him and she has a baby in 1959 and it's not the baby is not taken away from her and they they come back to her house and she I think she puts another friend's name on the birth certificate so that she that like the, the kid isn't taken away and then she just raises this kid while continuing to host these poetry salons with Allen Ginsberg and you know running a poetry theater and um uh you know uh, making all this com- crazy art and being around Warhol and doing all this kind of like in, in great artistic work and, and writing great, great poetry herself. And then she has more kids. Literally she has five kids um, wow. <laughs> basically and, and is working. And she's also very frank, you know, like in, there's a part in the memoir she's, where she's like, how did I do it? I put speed in my coffee every morning. And you're like, okay, I guess that's <laughs> the answer. Not great advice that you can put into your own life. But again, you're just in somebody else's mind that is so different than your own and is, and is such a sort of like a pleasure to be around. And because she's a poet, it's absolutely gorgeous writing and, and, um, I highly recommend it. It's it's an I I look at it now as like an alternative history to that period of time, the 1950s, where you know, like I said, when I whenever I took sort of like women's history or women's studies classes, understandably, it was about how that period was so repressive for women, and to and yeah. to read a narrative about a woman who felt all that oppression because throughout the novel she's talking about friends who got committed friends who happened to be lesbians and then their parents came and took them away and gave them shock treatment like she's under that repression like everybody else but somehow she um is able to sort of find her own life and 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 way through it and it's it's a really um great book in that that's fascinating like you say it's completely it's a kind of unexpected story because the kind of stories we're used to hearing about life during that era whether it is the great men making art or the women (laughs) being kind of oppressed and and not able to balance motherhood with anything else so that sounds fascinating how did you first come across it do you remember um i started reading it in part because oh I was reading um, this biography of um, Valerie Solanus that came out a few years ago. She was uh, the woman who shot Andy Warhol. Um, yes, of course. And she she was, Valerie Solanus wrote this thing called the Scum Manifesto, which was called the Society for Cutting Up Men. She was, uh, oh, she, yes. she okay. herself never considered herself a feminist. She was sort of just like a, a loner, um, uh, hardcore misandrist I guess she would probably claim that title um and there's this really wonderful biography that came out of her a few years ago that's um tracks her whole life and her whole involvement in in that scene and there's a there's a throwaway couple paragraphs where they mention um Diane de Prima's very good friend um who was an associate of Andy Warhol and so I went down this sort of research rabbit hole and I was like oh yeah I, I love she wrote um Diana Prima also, for a certain point, she needed money. So she wrote this fake memoir about her time in the beat stuff. It's just, it's basically just, she's admitted it. She said, I just wrote erotica because they wanted me to sort of like, <laughs> uh, that, that's what would sell. And so she wrote this thing. But again, she's a poet. So it's also like very beautifully written. So I had yeah. read that many years ago and, and really enjoyed it. And I was trying to, I thought, but I should probably read the actual memoir that is actually like. Yeah, real, the real version, yes. as well as the kind of erotic um, one. And so I read it and I, I loved it and, and you know a friend who's a poet um, has been trying to get me to read it for years so we've been sort of talking about it back and forth and um, and just by chance her Diane de Prima's most famous work her revolutionary letters are, are being reprinted here in the US I think they came out last week um, for a long yeah. time because she was so interested sort of in um, 
she was she was she was like a true underground artist she was not ever represented by any sort of publishing house um so for a long time she these works the revolutionary letters you could only get them by writing to a um i believe it was a meditation center in michigan and you had to send them a quarter or just say i don't have a quarter and then they would send you the work back and that's how these poets poems circulated so this is the first time that you can actually get them like oh, like buy them that's amazing yes. as well. I, yes. wanna, I wanna write that letter send the quarter yeah. something really special about getting the results that way you know yeah I mean the other reason why I would recommend recollections of my life as a woman is because it's also about her building a press um which should probably be oh, of interest okay. to your listeners and readers because she was you know she's under this repressive government in the 1950s literally at a time when you couldn't write a poem she writes about how they tried to publish a book of poetry and the word dick was in it and so the publisher the 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 press that they took it to literally refused to print it and said we we also represent churches and we can't print this poetry so she's always been she was always obsessed with sort of making her own press and having her own press and so the end of the book the, the memoir ends with when she was able finally to purchase her literal own press and she taught herself how to use it she got sort of all of her degenerate friends to to figure out how to use it as well. And they're literally just printing, you know, basically what's going to be the next canon of American literature of, of beat poetry sort of out of her apartment um, just because she she was, that's how she wanted to do it. And that's how she sort of made it happen. So just a really extraordinary person and, and interesting um, person for people. Yeah, truly extraordinary. I feel sort of bad having to ask you about the other book now. Oh, no. <laughs> live up to the, the description of this one. No, the other book is wonderful too. It's a, it's a novel um, called Black Girl in Paris by this, no- by this writer named Shay Youngblood. It came out again um, I think about 20 years ago and then it was republished maybe like five or six years ago. Um, and it's a semi-autobiographical novel about a, a young black woman. She, uh, her father passes away um, and she, her, her mother, um, she doesn't really feel close to her mother. Um, she's broken up her, she and her uh, boyfriend break up. And so she decides like many people before her to just move to Paris. She doesn't speak any, any French. Um, she moves there. It's in like the late 1980s. I think it's supposed to be set. Um, she moves there with very little money. She happens to meet a girl um, uh, as she's leaving the airport and the girl introduces her to the one other black American that she knows in Paris, who happens to be like this kind of artist guy who's just hanging out at bookstores and stuff and kind of scraping together this life by being charming. And so she falls into this life with this guy and then, you know, her own life as an artist and an artist model. And then she's a nanny. And then she sort of is a, she works as a thief for a little while. She's just sort of running around Paris, having all these different um, interesting adventures. Um, And again, the writing is, is really beautiful. It's, it's a really um, uh, sort of fun escape expat in Paris novel to read. That sounds brilliant. And it sounds like exactly what everyone who was complaining about the uh, Netflix show Emily in ah, Paris yes. is really boring. They should read this instead, right? That's such a good point. Oh my goodness. We were just talking about Emily in Paris at work because, you know, my one of my coworkers was pointing out, she was like, I don't know why people are getting so mad at this show. It's just, it's just supposed, it's clearly just supposed to be silly. It's just a yeah. silly thing. People are getting mad that it's not accurately Paris. It's just it's it's just what it is it is what it is i love the idea that people thought it was going to be accurate exactly. in the beginning that just seems to i feel like people have slightly missed the point of it there but exactly. like you know if you if that's exactly. what you want then you know read this novel There's instead it is like, exactly it's paris there are literally <laughs> millions of other representations that you could go to you don't have to watch emily in paris you can go watch something else exactly <laughs> exactly 
Our shells will be back in just a moment. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Caitlin Greenwich about why you shouldn't necessarily be watching Emily in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> right, next up, Caitlin, if I may, tell me about, I think you're going to tell me about a recent, is it a TV show and a podcast that has made you, two things that have made you think? Yes. So for a podcast, I really love this podcast that came out this fall called The Just Enough Family. It's by a really wonderful journalist here named Ariel Levy. And it's about this family. They were once sort of one of the richest families in the U.S. They owned this uh, insurance company. And then around September 11th, they basically lost all of their fortune. Like the, the company fell fell apart. And so it's a recounting of sort of what happened all through the eyes of the oldest daughter in the family. And as the podcast, you know, at first it sort of feels like it's just going to be sort of like this decadent, you know, like mm. 80s, 90s wealth, like crazy stuff. You know, they're talking about all these parties they had. And, and some of those parties are crazy, aren't they? The like, parties, yes, the parties are really not like they, they at a certain point for like their uncle's 60th birthday party, they hire... Uh, I think like it's like 50 different models to do living tableaus of his famous favorite Renaissance paintings and hold them for like the entire party. And this is a party with like Barbara Walters and like all these crazy celebrities. And it's, it's a really sort of like that part is very fun. Um, yeah. But the other narrative that's going through is, is just, tracing this family's dysfunction which is uh, you know apparent from the from the very start and you sort of see from the it's you know the the two founders of this company they're these two brothers um and the older brother sort of was in charge of the whole uh uh company and was like really the the brilliant mind behind it the younger brother was sort of just always backing him up the older brother has a stroke in the in the late 90s and that's sort of when the company falls apart because the younger brother is a terrible businessman and is just can't hold it together um and it's never ex exactly clear why it falls apart they're sort of they uh, they end up all suing each other at one point their 89 year old mom is suing 
the older brother who had a stroke. It's like, it's, it's really sort of like dynasty level and stuff. But underneath all that, again, is, is the real sort of uh, family dysfunction um, that comes through in the interviews because uh, Ariel Levy, the the journalist who is doing it, she's uh, close friends with the oldest daughter. And so because there's that trust there, she's able to sort of have these very long conversations with all of them about what their family was like and what their family dynamics were like. And, um, you know, the, the oldest daughter, she sort of, uh, I, I should say the oldest daughter, she's, uh, uh, famous, um, Liz, her name is Liz Lang. And so she runs this uh, maternity brand that's, um, very famous here and it's sold in a, in a bunch of different department stores. Um, and she sort of talks a lot about, um, how she was really sort of the, in the beginning, she's talking about how tough she was, how she was like the real tough daughter of a family. And she always pushed back against her parents and how tough and fair-minded she was. And then as the series go on, you realize that this is all just sort of her posturing that really she was the daughter who bought into the myth of their family being great the most. And her sister, who's sort of been in the background the whole time, was skeptical the whole time and um, really tried to keep herself away from the family drama and wealth and stuff. And so in the beginning, she's sort of like, yeah, my sister, she could never stand up for herself. And I was always a tough one and I'm a real go-getter. And then by the end of the series, you realize like all of their self-conceptions about themselves are completely um, different and, and not what they seem. So I really enjoyed that just like on a narrative level, it's really beautiful storytelling and um, really fascinating uh, look into a family's family history. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you picked that because I've been listening to it as well recently. Mm-hmm. Right? I can't remember where somebody recommended it and I was completely addicted. Like, yes. you, But I think that's it. Not only is it just every single episode, there's some kind of brilliant, like, you know, they talk about their amazing parties or the breakdown of a relationship or something. It's kind of, you know, that makes you go, wow, I can't believe that happened. But those levels of realizing that the stories they're telling about themselves and each other, it may be a little, you should be a bit distrustful of what's being said. Yes. Not because people are trying to make, but it's, you know, the idea of the stories we tell ourselves about our mm-hmm. families and about the myths around this family in particular are sort of fascinating and the way that they all weave these slightly different versions of it. Yes, yes. It's so fascinating. And it's, you know, it's what, it's actually weirdly, I think it's a podcast that even though it, there's like a lot of shocks and sort of surprises and twists and turns, it's one that I'll probably listen to again in a few months mm. just to sort of see how the storytelling works within it because it's it's a it's a really nicely put together um podcast so yeah you're right very cleverly done mm-hmm. um and is there a tv show as well you're gonna talk about is that right yes i've been watching uh love life which is it's like an anthology series where they follow one person's life through different relationships and so this season they're following the actor william jackson harper who played Cheedy on the good place and they're following his character sort of his romantic relationships from his start it starts with his divorce and then Mm. sort of goes through all of his post-divorce kind of meanderings and then it'll go back in time to his parents relationship and his own relationships and it's just it's really very sort of finely observed again sort of like the Petri conversation we're having earlier really finely observed realist fiction about this this man and his relationships and how you know he his character is supposed to be a book editor in New York City. He works at a mostly white publishing firm and he is sort of, he doesn't know who he is. The, the, the conceit is that he 
wears a different mask with everybody who he is. He's very different with his friends and he is okay. with his wife than he is in his workplace and he is with his family. And that's one of the reasons why his his marriage falls apart. He, he can't sort of bring his whole, he feels like he can't bring his whole self to there. So it's an exploration of sort of what a person does when they're slowly coming to that realization. And it's just really, really nice storytelling. You know, I'm always really, whenever I like read something that's set in like book publishing or like about a writer, I'm like, I don't want to read this. this is, I don't want this. But it, it, it's so good that it even overcomes that. And I'm like, okay, I'm in against my like better judgment. I'm, I'm in. So yeah. that's hilarious. I feel like people who work in the, like exist in the sort of literary world, either absolutely love stories that are set in publishing or yeah. really can't stand them. It's like one or the other. You can't be, you know, and I think, yeah, I, I know what you mean. So you see that and you kind of think, oh, God, really? And then but if it's good, and I think in a way that has slightly put me off it. But now you've won me over. I should really watch this. It sounds like. No, yeah, it's I think it's worth watching. And the um, it's uh, yeah, it's William Jackson Harper and uh, Jessica Williams. And they are both really charismatic actors. So it's, they, they help you forget um, some of the settings around because they're both very charming, very charming. people. <laughs> OK, it's on my it's on, it's on my watch list. Next up in our questions. Can you tell me about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way, please, Caitlin? Sure. Um, I think it's probably The Invention of Women by um, Oyarenke Oyewemi. I'm probably mispronouncing her name, but um, it's a book that came out uh, a few decades ago now. Um, it's called The Full Title is The Invention of Women, Making an African Sense of Western Gender Discourse. Um, and she's looking at the ways that people define gender with, within Yoruba land, within um, Yoruba communities. And she's sort of talking about how as a, um, you know, as a researcher, she was at first sort of approaching this question of gender um, through this lens of, of a, through a Western lens, which she defines as sort of thinking of gender solely as being defined and, and understood through people's physical bodies. Mm. And she realizes that when she's trying to do research in these communities, the questions aren't really connecting. She's not really sort of able to get people to respond. And she starts to realize that it's because there's a completely different understanding of gender and that gender is not necessarily connected to a person's physicality in these communities. And, and what, right. um, you know, if you're going to describe, you know, when we think of, oftentimes when we think of the concept of women, we're thinking of everybody who, you know, we're defining that either as like everybody who sort of shares these physical attributes. And that's not the case. That's not how they order these societies at all. When you're talking about who or what is a woman, not necessarily the people who share certain physical attributes would consider themselves part of a same community or part of a same um, categorization at all they don't that's like that that's not sort of a one-to-one -one correlation um, which is super fascinating right like it's yeah. super, super interesting and so and particularly um, now as well when we're having whole new conversations about gender and yeah sex. yeah especially as we're sort of um, thinking about it so it's it's very helpful you know I think um, I think sometimes when we're talking about um, how to think about gender and stuff in or, or histories of gender oftentimes when I read about them people will sort of say like but there's also you know like two-spirit stuff or stuff over here but I don't really get like the nitty-gritty like how did that mm. actually work within these societies or communities and how do people actually understand it and so I appreciate this book for really 
exploring that. I'm in the very um, beginning parts of it, so I can't tell you where where it goes, but I appreciate the book for um, uh, going deeper into that besides just saying like this exists, but actually saying Mm. like how people actually formulated and thought about it outside of sort of, you know, like utopian ideals or whatever. Like how did people actually sort of live that part Mm. of it? And so you're reading it right now then? I am, yes. Fascinating. And how did you come across it? Do you remember? Yeah, I actually came across it on um, Twitter. I was uh, sort of following uh, a, um, I forget who it was, but it was, uh, uh, I follow a lot of academics. And so an academic sort of tweeted, like, I I wish more people were were reading this book and sort of having people think about it. And so I was, I started to read it and I really enjoyed it. And it's sparked a lot of things for me as I'm thinking about things. Sounds great. It sounds like something many of us, I mean, I'd like to read it now and mm-hmm. it sounds like many people should be reading it at the moment, particularly, right? Yeah. Brilliant. Um, and then finally today, Caitlin, could you tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you particularly admire? Sure. I think as an artist, I really admire a fellow artist, Tourmaline. Um, she makes a bunch of different kind of art, mostly visual art and mostly short films. Um, and And she like myself, she's extremely interested in the archives and um, using archival work to inform her work. So she's probably most famous for she uh, uncovered a lot of the information that we have now on Marsha P. Johnson. She did, she found a lot of that and found a lot of the um, video archival work that we have of, of her. And um, uh, she also has a, a, short film out about uh, Seneca Village, which was a free Black community in New York City that they um, destroyed to make Central Park. Um, and uh, I full disclosure, she and I knew each other vaguely growing up in Boston. We both grew up um, in Boston. We're both part of a... Uh, <laughs> this is completely off topic. But we, we were both part of... There's a... Um, there's a, a like a Christmas pageant here called Black Nativity that is they do every year um, and it's actually it's actually very lovely. Um, but we were both part of the uh, children's chorus at certain points. I think we intersected. Oh like, wow! Doing Black Nativity, um, but uh, she, I just really love how she honors the archives, use the archives to think about um, making art for for our current moment. Um, uh, and I'm always just really blown away by what she's able to uncover when she does her archival work. Could you tell me briefly, I'm interested, you say that you obviously use archives a lot as well. Mm-hmm. What kind of, I mean, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? And what is it about, I mean, I, I, I'm always very interested to know people who spend a lot of time in archives looking for kind of material, how you go about your actual process of looking, as in do you kind of follow your nose in particular directions and kind of see, or are you always very clear about what you want to research when you go into that? Well, what I'm researching for fiction, the, the, the fun part about it is getting to follow your nose, because I feel like, um, for me at least, when researching for fiction, it really is like what's sparking what what interests or what connections are your is your brain sort of making um, to try and pull this stuff into a fictional world. Um, and so that part is very fun for me because, um, you know, I, I thought for a very brief moment that I was going to be an academic, but one of the things that was really turned me off about being a, a historian or, or, you know, working in, uh, I used to think I wanted to do like American studies or some sort of like cultural history stuff, um, was the fact that you couldn't, it, it felt like really constrained. Like I felt like mm-hmm. I couldn't necessarily follow my 
interest um, to build a historical argument because you really do have to sort of go on the more beaten path to convince people to follow you sort of in a, in another direction. Um, yeah. So I like fiction writing in that I don't have to do all that legwork of like, um, uh, you know, re repeating sort of all the historical arguments that came before so I can make my argument over here. Like I just, I, I like fiction writing for sort of getting away with that getting away from that whole step-by-step um, -step dancing. Yeah, yeah. As someone who, as an ex-academic myself, who was never very good at following the beaten track, I know exactly yes. what you mean. <laughs> yes, it's really, it's really difficult. So, um, yeah, and so I, what I, but I, what I love when I'm doing research is when you sort of find that anecdote or image or, or, you know, piece of writing that doesn't really fit anywhere into a historical mm -hmm. argument. If you were to try and build, you know, like a whole paper around it, it would probably be a very slight paper. It probably wouldn't really yeah. work. Um, but in but fiction, yet it sparks something. Yes. Right? And it yeah, sparks something in your you imagination can. that is huge. Mm -hmm. Yes. So yeah. There's something great about that. Um, and finally, I know I'm, I'm pushing you a little bit at the end here, oh, but yeah, no um, I wanted to know, do you think you'll be writing more historical fiction yourself then? Is this something that you think you might stay in that realm? Maybe in a different period? I don't know. But is it something that you like doing? I do like doing it. I think I'll probably always write something about the past in a certain way. I think, you know, coming off of a novel, I kind of, for a next big project, I don't know that I want to spend that much time in the past again, especially because I feel like, I I don't know, I feel like this is probably my own bias, but I feel like oftentimes with historical fiction, there's like a assumption made about the type of narratives that you're going to be telling. Mm -hmm. And so um I like to write a lot in the past, you know, I, when I was, when I did my MFA, I was um, studying with uh, Peter Carey, who of course, like all of his novels are basically historical fiction. So I feel like I was sort of like uh, influenced from the very beginning of a novel. Yeah, you kind of suck that up a little matter. bit. Yeah. Like it's everything, it's, you know, <laughs> all of time is open to you, like just go for it kind of thing. Um, but now I'm sort of like thinking, do I really want to um, spend time in the past? So I'm, I'm not sure. The answer to that is like, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. that's perfect that leaves us all on tender hooks for what yeah. comes next very yeah. excited i can't yeah. whatever it is set past present future i can't wait to read it caitlin thank you so much for joining us today that's been great thank you yes of course thank you for having me Thank you, everyone, for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Caitlin Greenwich. And tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Black for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.